Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Rozeal and my guest today is Bob Babbitt. He is the CEO of Babbitt Media Group and host of Babbittville and Babbittville Radio. He's also the co-founder of the Challenged Athletes Foundation and inducted into the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame and Ironman Triathlon Hall of Fame. Bob clearly is an incredible person. He's done so much. He's raised so much money, over $112 million for the Challenged Athlete Fund. He has such great stories. He's an absolute character, and I sincerely appreciate him coming on. So I'll stop talking, and I'll let you enjoy this episode with Bob Babbitt. Today, I'm for the love of sports. I have the incredible Bob Babbitt, CEO of Babbitt Media Group, host of Babbittville and Babbittville Radio, co-founder of the Challenged Athletes Foundation, and is an inductee of the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame and Ironman Triathlon Hall of Fame. Bob, how are you today? Michael, I'm awesome. How are you doing? Good day to be alive, Bob. It is a good day to be alive. I told you it's 70 degrees here in New Jersey. I want to get this interview up and over with so I can get back outside. Exactly. How often does that happen in early May? It was 46 degrees the other day, so uh, not too often. So we'll take it when we can. But Bob, again, sincerely appreciate you coming on. Very excited to get to talk about you and your life and you know the sports that you love so much. But the first question I have for everybody um, for the love of sports is, why do you love sports so much? I love sports because it changes lives, right? It changes lives for the better. It makes you, if you're involved with sports, you are a better parent, you're a better employee, employer, everything you do in your life is enhanced when you're involved with sport and involved with, with, with just getting out there and testing yourself. So you, you, there are so many times where you don't know what you can do and you find out through sport. And I want to talk about the first time it, that you found out what you were capable of doing. I know, you know, you and I already spoke about it. The first yeah. Ironman that you ever ran. I, right. I would love to hear that story one more time. And I hope the people out there listening would love to hear it too, because it is pretty impressive what you did and how you thought you got to sleep along the way and, and all the details of it. <laughs> well, first of all, the Ironman triathlon was an event that started on the island of Oahu back in 1978. And the first year, there was 15 starters and 12 finishers. And it's a 2.4-mile swim and a 112-mile bike ride and a 26.2-mile run. And those distances came about because there was an argument on the, big, on the island of Oahu among the runners and cyclists and swimmers after an article came out in Sports Illustrated back in 1977 or so saying that Eddie Merckx, the five-time winner of the Tour de France, was the world's greatest endurance athlete. Well, after this run around the island of Oahu, the members of this perimeter relay group were arguing, well, wait a second, why is it the cyclist? Why isn't it the swimmer? Why isn't it the runner? And Commander John Collins, who actually had been in San Diego when the sport launched, sport of triathlon launched in Mm -hmm. 1974, he gets up in front of the group and goes, hey, you know what? Uh, We're going to find out once and for all who the greatest endurance athlete is. We'll take the Waikiki Roughwater Swim, which is 2.4 miles. The Around Oahu bike ride, 112 miles. The Honolulu Marathon, 26.2 miles. We'll put all three of them together, and whoever wins it will call him the Ironman. And then he promptly forgot about it. <laughs> and, 
And then one of the guys who he, uh, uh, one of the guys who worked under him was like, you know, commander, sir, why don't we do that iron thing, sir? And he's like, well, I better put this event on. So he put the event on and, you know, no aid stations. People were just, people didn't know if you could actually do that distance. It's who knew if you could do 2.4, 112 and 26.2 in one day. So 78, 15 starters, 12 finishers, 79, 15 starters, 12 finishers, 79. They do an article in Sports Illustrated again, an eight-page article about this thing called the Ironman Triathlon, and it showcased a guy in San Diego named Tom Warren who won the race. And myself and my roommate, a guy named Ned Overend, who went on to become world mountain bike champion, but mountain bikes hadn't been invented yet. Uh, the two of us were, he was working as a mechanic at San Diego Suzuki. I was a school teacher, and we read this article, and we're like, we got to track down Tom Warren and find out how do you... How do you sign up for this? How do you find out more? Because you can't go online back in 1979 to find out about something, right? You had to track somebody down. So I call this guy, Tom Warren, up and he's like, you know, Babbitt, you know, come on down and uh, come to my office and we'll talk about it. Well, I get to what he calls his office and it's a motorhome and there's a bike on the back and there's a paddleboard on top and there's running shoes tied on the side view mirror. And I put my head inside and he's like, hey, welcome to my office. And what he would do is every morning go for a five mile run. He would paddle out in the ocean. He'd ride his bike 40, 50, 60 miles and he'd, he'd come back. And, you know, he, that was his life. And then he, yeah, there was a payphone behind him. And for the bar he owned, he'd order beer and he'd order tortilla chips and whatever else he needed to do. So his lifestyle was this thing. Basically, he was an Ironman before the event existed. So then he invites us back to this bar across the way to talk a little bit about what this event is about and how do you do it. And again, he's our mentor. He's going to show us and direct us how to do this. And as he's talking about the event, he's got a magic marker and he's making a mark on his arm every time he has a beer. And I'm like, you know, Mr. Warren, sir, I know you're our mentor. Can you tell us what the magic marker has to do with this? And he goes, well, I have a little bit of a drinking problem. I make a mark every time I have a beer. When I get to my sleeve, I go home. And I'm like, oh, okay, we, we get it. You're a crazy man. So those were the early guys in our sport. We went back to his house. He had a bike mounted in the sauna. He'd ride five hours a day in the sauna because he was getting ready for a race in Hawaii, which makes sense if you're a crazy person. So anyways, we go to get, a, get bikes. We realize we need to own bikes. We go to a police auction. I buy a bike uh, for $75. The whole back end was burnt. And uh, I didn't know how to change a tire, so I put flat-proof tires on it. I had foam grips on there, and I had a fuzzy raccoon seat cover. And we had no idea what we were doing. We come over to do this Ironman thing. At any time during this, did you think, hey, maybe we probably shouldn't be doing this? Never. Any time? Never. No. It, it, well, it did, you, did you ever make it up to your sleeve in beers? I, <laughs> I, I, we were, we, we never, we just wore a long sleeve, right? Just oh. We avoid the beers entirely. So anyways, we get over there and uh, the event, because of the article in Sports Illustrated, now there was 108 of us. It had grown from the 15 starters to 108 starters, you know, booming. And so we were there and my bike, so I've got this bike with a Radio Shack radio bungee corded on the handlebars. And uh, then um, I've got... Uh, I've, I've got pannier sleeping bag and tent on the bike because I thought that you swam 2.4, rode 56, camped out and rode back the next day and did the marathon, which if you think about it, makes a hell of a lot more sense than trying to do a whole thing in one day. 
And there was no aid station, so you had to have a support crew. My crew, I was a teacher in San Diego. One of the kids I taught, her dad lived over in Oahu. He shows up with his Fiat convertible and a couple of his girlfriends. And, you know, I give, who knows what to eat? I give him my, you know, 50 loaves of Hawaiian sweet bread and Gatorade. And again, we were totally flying by the seat of our pants. We had no idea what we are So we get out there on, on race day, and it was a four-length swim. They had to move the swim because the, way, the surf was so big that they had to move it to Alamoana Channel. And the reason was ABC now was interested in covering this thing. But they were shooting cliff diving on Sunday. They happened to have a crew over there. And if the event had to be moved a day, they couldn't shoot it, right? They, they would miss the opportunity to, show the, to do the Ironman. It's funny because the race director, when ABC first called him, being the PR genius that he was, he was like, why would you want to shoot this thing? They're underwater for the first hour. Then <laughs> they ride out in the, in the middle of nowhere and they run in the dark. I can't imagine anybody wanting to watch this. It would be like watching grass grow. And ABC was like, you know what? You put the event on, we'll make it interesting. So we get out there on race day and I'm swimming as close to shore as possible. We weren't the best swimmers. All of our swimming had been done in a 120 length in a mile pool in a condo in, in San Diego. And uh, there was one guy in the race who had sponsorship, a guy named John Huckabee. He was 59 years old and his claim to fame, he had done the Athens Marathon three times in one day. He'd run over 75 miles in one day. One problem was he had no idea how to swim, none whatsoever. So I'm swimming down. I swim one length and it's a four length swim. On my way back, I almost run into Huck, who is walking in the shallow water, moving his arms like this, like he's swimming, right? And he's, I tell people he's the only guy in the history of the Ironman to get blisters on his feet during the swim portion of the Ironman triathlon. So I get out of the water and I'm, I'm tuning in my radio. I'm, I'm excited to get out of the water. I'm tuning in my radio. I'm riding through Waikiki. I'm thinking this is the coolest thing ever. There's my crew waiting at mile 25. And I'm like, this is going to be a Tour de France. I'm going to get a, a food handoff from my crew. You know, Big Mac fries and a Coke at mile 25. Then at mile 80, I got a root beer snow cone, which was awesome. And I come in at the end of the bike and I hear this music. And my crew had a bamboo mat laid down and a boom box. And they're like, how about a massage? I'm like, oh, my God, that would be awesome. So I got a 45-minute massage between the bike and the run. What the hell? Then I get up and I start running. And they had a rule back then that you had to get off your bike during the run. You had to get weighed. They had weigh stations. And they had a rule that if you lost 5% of your body weight, that they would pull you out of the race for safety reasons. Where that rule came from, I have no idea. So I'd gotten off the bike a number of times during the bike. So now during the run, I get weighed at the start of the run. And then I'm waddling through Waikiki, eating Hawaiian sweetbread and drinking Gatorade. And I get on the scale at about mile five and I can hear the guy in a walkie talkie. He's like, ah, can you give me that again? The guy's gained five pounds. You can't gain weight. doing this thing. So I'm running. Now I'm running along. And meanwhile, my roommate, Ned, his girlfriend lost him early in the bike ride. When she finally caught him at mile 90, he was drinking out of sprinklers in the median strip because he had no water whatsoever. So... Now I'm about mile 20 or so, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to finish this thing. I never thought I was going to finish this thing in one day. I was going to do it two days. I had pannier sleeping bag and tent. So now I'm running up Diamond Head, and my crew is behind me. It's the middle of the night. They got their lights on me and their Fiat convertible, and I'm thinking, 
this is the coolest thing ever. I'm going to be dropping in the Kapilani Park and there's going to be cheerleaders and there will be bands. It's going to be so festive. I come running into Kapilani Park and there's a light bulb over my head and there's a chalk line on the road. And I hear this voice in the darkness like, hey, you. I'm like, yeah, you in the race? Yeah, you're done. That was it. There was nobody there. There was like one guy doing one-arm push-ups. And it was just like, oh, what the hell? And I go back to my room and Ned's there and his the moon is coming through the window and his back looks like a lobster. Like he's like, he just rolls over and goes, I didn't see her all day long. But I came away from that feeling like I had just been given this business card that told me I can do anything. Right. And I used the Iron Man for everything I did from then on. When you know, when you think about it, you can look at a it's 140.6 miles in one day. You can be defeated right before you start the event. Or you can be thinking, you know what? It's a 2.4 mile swim and I'm a quarter of the way to the turnaround. You know, glasses up half, always half full. Oh, I'm halfway to the turnaround. I'm three quarters away. I'm, ha I'm halfway done with this. Rather than, oh my God, I got to go all the way back. It's you have to play that game of let's make a positive out of everything. So I ended up leaving teaching and going and working for a guy who had a magazine called Running News and in San Diego, free magazine. And I told him, I'm like, dude, this sport is based on the 108 idiots who had just done it. This sport is going to be huge. And we changed the name, became Running and Triathlon News. Eventually that went out of business in 87. And I ended up uh, going to a couple of different magazines. There's a magazine called Southwest Cycling and California Bicyclists, all of them free magazines. And telling both publishers, if we do a magazine that combines running, triathlon, and cycling, it could be really successful. And they both told me the same thing. They said, one, we'll never put a skinny runner in the cover of our magazine. And two, triathlon's a fad. It'll be gone in five years. And so I came back and friends brought me and my, my partner, my, I ended up being my business partner, Lois. They, they brought us into a meeting and gave us a check for $17,000 and said, go start your own magazine. And so we got a office underneath 10,000 pounds of bike racks in a guy's garage. Uh, and we were paying $200 a month for 200 square feet. We launched competitor in a, running triathlon news went out of business in, in, in March of 87. And by June of 87, we launched competitor magazine and competitor magazine ended up growing to from this one little magazine. We didn't pay ourselves for two years. We lived, I lived on friends floors. And it was all about, we believed in this brand. We believed in our sports. And so we ended up, uh, we ended up growing the, the magazines. We ended up doing 11 editions around the country, half a million circulation, launched competitor radio. So we had competitor Texas and competitor Northeast and competitor Northwest. And in 2008, it became the competitor group. We sold to a private equity firm called Falconhead out of New York, and they put together our 11 editions of competitor magazine a series i had started called the muddy buddy ride and run series which is a predecessor of spartan race and tough mudder there was seven of those and then they bought elite racing which owned the rock and roll marathon series it was seven rock and roll marathons and then we bought uh, from a media perspective we had competitor magazine bought triathlete magazine for triathlon bella news for cycling women's running magazine so you had this competitor group Mm -hmm. Went from my 22 employees to 500 employees from 2008 to 2012, and the brand just blew up.
seven rock and rolls became 34 rock and rolls. And we have 650,000 participants. And what really changed the dynamics of running, 650,000 participants, 60% women. Back when I first got into this in the early 80s, it was 80 to 85% guys. Well, when all of a sudden you've got 65% women participating in these running events, then it changes the dynamic of the events. It changes the whole charity component because a lot of the women got into it specifically for the charity. I think $8 million was raised for team and training at that first rock and roll San Diego event. And when people, they get, in, people get into something for the charity and they realize they feel good about themselves. And it, then the expos, rather than you and I going to an expo, picking up our numbers and leaving in two seconds, all of a sudden people are shopping and people are spending time and you're doing half a million dollars in merchandise. So it, it changed the face of, of everything endurance. And then by 2012, we sold again to another private equity firm called Calera. And I, I stayed on till 2014 and I left. It was a little too unwieldy. It's so big at that point and wanted to get back to my roots and relaunched competitor radio became Babaville radio and breakfast with Bob, which is my, my YouTube channel and Facebook live. And it's been, it's been great. It's amazing, man. Just the, like literally the, like you have been able to shape a sport or at least have a nice hand in shaping a sport all because you thought, eh, maybe I can try that. Why not? Let's go find that guy in San Diego and see if he can tell us a little bit more about this crazy event over there. Well, and also the main thing was I saw what it did for me, right? I, it changed my perception of me finishing that Ironman. So I knew if it changed me, it was going to change everybody. And that's what happened. If you look at our, the history of our sports, so you go from Sports Illustrated covering the 79 Ironman, ABC Wild World of Sports covering the Ironman 1980, 81, 82. And in 82, when, I don't know if you remember, Julie Moss, Kathleen McCartney, but you had these two 22-year-old co-eds who were doing the race. And Julie Moss, this is the original reality television. Julie Moss is leading the race. She's got a borrowed uh, bra on. She's got a trucker hat. She's red hair, freckles. She could have been your daughter, your girlfriend, your next door neighbor, babysitting your kids. You are watching her come apart at the seams. As she's heading towards the finish to win this race, she collapses. She craps herself. She gets up. She goes down. It's like watching Rocky. You're like, stay down, stay down. And she gets up and she walks and she, she gets past, like seriously, 50 feet from the finish as she's laying on the ground. And then the camera zooms back and you see her on all fours crawling to the finish line and collapsing across that finish line with a smile on her face. They put a, put a lay around her neck, put her on a stretcher and carry her off. And ABC Wild World of Sports cuts to ice dancing, right? They cut to another sport. And people watching at home on ABC first are thinking, this is beautiful. It's Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Who is this crazy woman? And who are these crazy people doing these insane distances? And then what is it about this finish line that's so important that this young girl will crawl and crap herself to get there? And how do I get some of that in my life? How do I get some of that passion in my life? So because you think about it, most of the people watching from all over the country were, you know, they'd gone through high school, they'd gone through college, they got their job, they got their family, their life was pretty set, but they were missing that passion. All of a sudden, they're seeing this on television. So the phone lines lit up at ABC to the point they had to fly Julie and Kathleen to New York 
the following weekend to be on with Jim McKay, the dean of ABC Wild World of Sports, to convince the American public this sport doesn't kill people, right? And from that moment, that was our moment. That was the most important moment in triathlon history. That led, because that was February of 82, um, that led to them doing a second Ironman that year in October so that people could train for it throughout the year. And once in February, it limits it to people in warm weather areas. You're in New Jersey. You mm-hmm. can't train for an event that's in February. So that, And then the United States Triathlon Series, shorter events, the series started in June of 82. And who were the stars of that series? Julie Moss and Kathleen McCartney. So it, you know, that's the other thing with our sport. The woman's side of our sport has always been, there's always been equal prize money. The women are better <laughs> than the guys. And a lot of times they drive more media. So it's never been one of those things like in cycling where they have a Tour de France for men and they really have nothing for women. Ironman and our sport have always been about, we're an equal opportunity abuser. We don't care if you're missing a leg, if you're in a wheelchair, if you're a woman, if you're a guy, it doesn't matter. Come on out and see if you have what it takes to get from point A to point B and get across that magical finish line on a lead drive. And it's, it, it doesn't, again, you're, you're explaining it all to me and we're laughing. I mean, you have a massage part of the way through the race. I mean, like who you had must've had the most comfortable, most enjoyable 140, whatever miles it's ever been. But as you said, you know, the passion that comes out of it and, and seeing Julie and what she had to go through and literally just those last few steps, what she was willing to put her body through, especially on camera to allow herself to, you know, that smile, as you said, as she's just leaning over the finish line. And that passion comes out of it. But for you, obviously, there was enough passion to go and say, hey, I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to I want to promote this sport as much as possible because that's what it, you know, it it did something to me. I wanted to do something to others. What is it about the sport and especially finishing that first race that pretty much uprooted everything that you've done to this point in your life to say, "Okay, I found something new. This is what I'm doing this. I'm promoting this sport in any way I can so I can allow other people to have this opportunity like I did. Yeah, what I realized early on was I most of us are pretty hyperactive. And when you're running a marathon, you're you're out there a long time just doing one thing. What I loved about triathlon right from the beginning is you know being the hyperactive kid is I'm swimming, uh, this is so cool, I'm in the water, this is great, there's guys around me, this is really, really fun, my arms are getting sore, oh my God, when are, oh, I'm done. And oh my God, I'm on the bike. This is so much fun. Look how pretty that is. This is great. Is it, oh, my, my butt's getting sore. My neck's getting tight. My shoulders, oh, I'm done. Now I'm running. My legs feel like crap off the bike, but all of a sudden my legs are starting to feel good. This is cool. I'm passing people. I'm in the beer garden. I mean, it's, you know, you got this, you've got this, basically you are experiencing a sliver of life in a period of time. It doesn't matter how long the triathlon is. There's the waking up in the morning going, do I really need to get up at five in the morning to go prove myself? You roll over with the alarm and I'll go back to bed. I'm going to get up. Then you, you know, you go to the event and you're like, oh my God, the waves look big. I don't know if I can get through those. Okay. I'll give it a try. Oh my God, I'm through. So it's all these, you know, the guy on one shoulder and the guy on the other shoulder saying, you can do it. You can't do anything. You can do it. You can't do anything. And by the time you're in the beer garden at 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning, right, if you're doing a short distance race, it's never been about me against the other guys. It's me against the course and me about against myself. And you're in the beer garden at 8.30 in the morning while most people are still sleeping and you've done a swim, bike, run, and it's there's just something about it that's empowering. And I, the other thing I realized early on 
is it's the fountain of youth. If I'm a runner, there's a point of diminishing return. When I get to be 50 years old, I'm not going to be faster than I was at 40. At 60, I'm not going to be faster than I was at 50. I'm 60, I turned 69 last week. I can be faster now than I was 10 years ago as a triathlete, right? I know that I can swim faster. I know I can ride faster. I can certainly run faster. So it's, it's sort of that uh, last fall, I was racked next to 93-year-old Charlie French, right? He, he had a disc wheel and uh, he had aero bars on his bike. He's got a full head of hair. He drove down from Boise, Idaho, or Sun Valley, Idaho to San Diego, a 15-hour drive to do a short-distance triathlon, and he's 93 years old. To me, that's the ultimate payback. It's like, listen, this sport will keep me young forever. And one of our buddies, Bill Bell, who finished the Ironman when he was 78, didn't get into endurance until he was 55. He passed away three days ago, 97. And he was still participating. He was still involved. That's actually a funny story with Bill. He started calling me when he was like 65. He's like, Bob, the age divisions are 50 to 54, 55 to 59, 60 plus. And he's like, I'm 66 now. I can't compete with a 60-year-old. They need to have 60 to 64, 65, 69. So every year, we'd have to go back to USA Triathlon to have them add age divisions to the point where now there's 90 to 94, 95 to 99 because of Bill Bell. In fact, I had race directors call me and go, just tell me if Bill's coming so I can make an award for him. <laughs> not gonna be another one. But you go to the races now, and there are full categories in 80 to 84 and 85 to 89. And that's because triathlon is absolutely the fountain of youth and and with your hand in helping all of this how does that how has that impacted you to see what you've been able to do i know it's not just solely you but obviously you start the magazine you start you know to help promoting the sport as much Mm -hmm. as possible how how awesome is it to know that all these people have been influenced by you in either the smallest possible way or the biggest possible way to get out and and try to achieve the things that you have been able to achieve in your life well, you know, it's really more from a selfish perspective. I love the race. I mean, I raced 30 times last year. And that's why when people say, why do you race so much? I'm like, well, you can ask, answer that question now. We can't, right? We can't. We don't know what races are going to look like moving forward. All I know is that if, if I'm not putting a number on on a weekend, I feel like I'm losing something. Because it's every single weekend I go out to a race and there's all my buddies in what we call the 60 to death category, right? 60 to 64, 65, 69, 70, 74. We always get a photo beforehand and we're like, it's 4.30 in the morning. It's pitch black out. We're the, our, famous, our line that we use every time is, why are we doing this? Because we can. Right? That's what it comes down to. Because we can. Because we, we love doing it and we, we want to be doing it forever and ever. And I respect the heck out of that, man. I think that that's absolutely incredible. And and just kudos to you on everything. I think you've been able to do so much in your career. Just again, from this one, this first race, which have you ever, have you had a Big Mac or a massage halfway through a race uh, ever since? I have not. I've had Big Mac, not, not in a race, but I've had Big Mac. I haven't had a massage set up, but I probably need to. I probably do need to do another race and, and sort of redo that. Have a Big Mac fries and a Coke somehow during a bike ride and get the massage. It worked once, man. Try it again. Have massage envy. Maybe they'll they'll come and uh, promote and give everybody a nice massage halfway through. How's that sound? In transition, why not? I think that's a great idea. Massage, Let's massage get it. Envy, the official transition massage team. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. That would be fantastic. And and so you were talking about it before, 
you know, you expanded the 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 media aspect. Uh, you got into events and you started doing these, obviously, the rock and roll marathons and all these other things. But the one thing that I know that you're very, very proud of, the Challenged Athlete Fund. You were talking about before how it doesn't matter who you are. We'll let you be abused by the course, no matter, yeah. you know, gender, yeah. you're missing a leg, missing your sight, whatever it is. How did the opportunity come to start this fund? And what made you push forward to now, you know, I'll let you say the numbers because they're, they're it, absolutely incredible. It's pretty incredible. It's been 26 years. We've raised over $112 million. We've sent out over 26,000 grants just in March, right before the pandemic hit. We sent out 3,921 grants, totaling $5.9 million for athletes in all 50 states in Puerto Rico and 43 countries. And in my, what I'm proud of, 103 different sports. Who knew there were 103 different sports? But there's everything from blind hockey to beat baseball to hand cycling to quad rugby, you name it. So what and happened was- So just, just for yeah. clarification, I apologize. What, do, what does the grant do? What does it allow these athletes yeah. to do? So uh, one of the things we learned early on was that when you get injured, if you get injured uh, and your health insurance covers a walking around leg or an everyday wheelchair, nothing to do with sport is covered by insurance because insurance companies consider uh, sport a luxury item. And I think you know, and obviously your viewers know, sport isn't a luxury item. It's a huge part of who we are and what we do. And so you know, you got a hand cycle that's $5,000. Well, people, people who are disabled notoriously are making less money anyways, right? And so they're struggling to make ends meet. A $5,000 hand cycle is just not something. So we pay for equipment, training, uh, travel expenses to get to Paralympics or to comp any competitions. That's the type of stuff we do. And everything for us started actually with a football player by the name of Jim McLaren, who was a 300-pound football player at Yale, offensive lineman back in 1985. Jimmy was taking acting classes in New York, was on his motorcycle going to class in New York City when he got hit by a bus and thrown 90 feet in the air, dead on arrival, lived, lost his lower left leg, and came back from that with a prosthetic that by today's standards is like Captain Hook. It, it, he ran a 316 marathon and went 1042 at the Ironman World Championship in Hawaii, which is top 20% of everybody in the race. And I had Competitor Magazine back then, so I'm covering Jimmy is this amputee athlete who is changing the world. He's the Babe Ruth of amputee athletes. Flash ahead, 1993, he's racing up in Mission Viejo here in California. A van goes through a closed intersection, hits the back of his bike, propels him into a pole headfirst. A guy who's already an amputee becomes a quadriplegic. And at that point, myself and two close friends, Rick Kozlowski and Jeffrey Essekow, we got together and I'd covered through competitor a lot of wheelchair athletes. And the one thing I'd hear from them is like, what's the worst part about your new lot in life? And invariably it would be, I'm 30 years old. Here come mom and dad back in my life. No sense of self or independence. So our goal became, let's raise $25,000 by putting on a little triathlon and we'll get Jimmy a van with hand controls and give him independence. We do the little triathlon, we raise 49. We think our job is done. Three amputee women come up to us and go, listen, it's great we did for Jimmy. He's our hero, got us into endurance. But did you know if you get injured, your health insurance covers a walking around leg or an everyday wheelchair, nothing to do with sports is covered. And that's when we got our 5013C and decided if someone needed a piece of equipment, training or travel to stay in a game of life through sport, we'd be there. And you know, it was like all these, all, all of my universes merging. So we had, you know, Challenge Athletes Foundation became obviously a very, very important for me with Competitor Magazine and with Competitor Group and Rock and Roll Marathon and 
1994. We had the first wheelchair athlete participate in the Ironman in Hawaii. There really wasn't a category before that. And eventually it became swimming, hand cycling and racing chair. And now we have, you know, we have athletes going nine hours <laughs> in using hand cycling racing chairs. And, you know, over the years, we've had so many of our athletes showcased in the Ironman TV show. So many of our Challenge Athlete Foundation athletes showcased in our TV show to show the American public and the world public that there really isn't any reason that you can't accomplish whatever you want. I think what people learn from our athletes is if he or she can do it, missing a leg, missing two legs in a wheelchair, what's my excuse? I'm, I'm putting off going for my run today or going to the gym because my back's a little sore. That feels a little silly when you see what our athletes are dealing with on, on a daily basis. Exactly. And it's just, again, I, those numbers are incredible. $112 million, 26,000 grants, 46 countries, 43 countries. Actually, it's over to overall, it's been over 73 countries. This year was 70. 40. Oh, I apologize. Over, over time. Yeah. 73 countries. I mean, that's just so incredible. There's no opportunity, obviously, at least I don't think for you to meet every single one of these athletes face to face, but Again, you know, just the understanding that you're impacting so many people's lives and you're allowing others to give to this fund so that they can impact other people's lives. How have you seen your sport rise because of it? You've been doing this for over 20 years at this point. Yeah. Now, as you said, you're starting to see them in the, on the TV show. You're starting to see them in the races more. How cool is it to, you know, run into someone every once in a while and be like, hey, Bob, like you don't know me, but you've literally changed my life. Best thing ever. I'm at the, at the Paralympics in Rio 2016. And this woman walks up to me in the lobby of the hotel and she goes, Bob, you probably don't remember. My name's Deborah Jackson. My son Desmond received a running leg from you when from CAF when he was eight years old. Tomorrow he's running in the finals at a 200 here in Rio. I mean, that's cool stuff. When you when you see that, when you see our athlete and what's cool about it, the importance of sport, the power of sport, it makes people comfortable in their skin. If they're achieving in sport they're achieving in life and they're you see somebody who's a you know who's a quadriplegic and playing quad rugby and that's a sport it's like no autopsy no foul you're in these 45 pound chairs and just beating the crap out of each other it's an amazing sport it's one of the loudest sports i've ever seen these guys are spectacular athletes and you wouldn't know that until you see that and without the grants that we provide a lot of these athletes i think this last paralympics 52% of the athletes who were on the American team had received grants from CAF. So that's what you're proud of. You want to empower people to be great. The other side of it is if you've got a guy comes home paralyzed from Iraq or Afghanistan and the family's going for a bike ride and dad doesn't have a hand cycle, dad's sitting inside and the family goes for a bike ride. Dad has a hand cycle, the whole family unit's together, sharing that same experience. That's as important as any Paralympic medal. You know, just the whole family unit really succeeding because of sport. And you, you make a great point. I mean, athletes it, in sport, you can feel comfortable in your skin, yeah. but you can also, it brings people together like no other. Oh. Obviously that story with, you know, helping, you know, veterans or, or really anybody be able to spend more time with their family is obviously very impactful for them, for their kids, for their husband or their wife. But just the fact that now they have a group of people that they can spend time with that have gone through something, maybe not exactly the same, but similar and allows them to connect to other people in a specific way as through yeah. sport. It just, again, what you're doing, man, I think is incredible. 
the, my favorite thing is we have our, our the triathlon that we started for Jim McLaren 26 years ago. We do that at La Jolla Cove here in San Diego. And we'll have 150 challenge athletes from all over the world there. And what we forget sometimes is even though the world is so connected, more connected than ever before, if you're in, uh, you're in South Dakota and your son is a double above knee amputee, you don't have a lot of role models. You don't have a lot of people to talk to. When you're out here in San Diego and there's legs laying all over the ground and there's wheelchairs everywhere, you now have a social group. I had a mom come up to me a couple of years ago with, you know, with tears in her eyes. And she's like, listen, you guys don't get how important this is. For 363 days a year, my son feels like a freak. This weekend, he's like everybody else. And you, know, you don't want to ever lose sight of that is we've got all these teenage girls who are all amputees who live in all parts of the country are now best of friends because they met at San Diego Triathlon Challenge. And they're looking at each other going, oh, you're a surfer, you're a runner, you're a soccer player. We're all missing a leg. We are, we're bonded. We will be friends forever. And that's, that's pretty cool watching our kids just succeed in life. That's the best part is sport is just a, is, is a stepping stone for moving on with the rest of your life. Yeah, it's just an avenue to continue to go down and be able to yeah. do other things and, and be who you want to be and understanding that it is a possibility. You know, as you were talking about before, you know, the 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 mental aspect of especially the the Ironman triathlon is probably right. the biggest part. Obviously, you have to be in some sort of shape, right. but the mental aspect is something that changes people's lives. As you said, after finishing it, you said, well, I can pretty much do anything at this point if I'm capable Absolutely. of doing this during a day maybe less McDonald's, but I can probably do anything at this point. And now, you know, again, with being able to pass that on to others, especially people that are, are paraplegic, quadriplegic amputees and allowing them now to have that feeling and have that passion back or, or finding it for the first time, just again, and how you're doing it, I think is incredible. And, and through the media company, you know, how yep. you did it through, through, um, uh, I apologize, how you did it through competitor magazine and competitor group. And then now what you're doing with Babbittville, how are you able to showcase these stories and how are you able to give everybody reading just a normal person like me, you know, just the opportunity to say, you can actually do anything you put your mind to. So in terms of the, from a media perspective, I find, especially during these times, people are looking for good stories. People are looking for good news. We did a a um, heroes of sport is when we give our grants out, that's our hero. Those are our heroes of sport. Mm -hmm. We did a heroes of sport celebration where we did a, like a 45 minute show last on, on Cinco de Mayo on my birthday. And we had like 8,000 viewers from all over the country. We raised, raised uh, $95,000. We're going to get to a hundred thousand. And we showcased a number of amazing stories. We had a, a, uh, a football player named Alex Ruiz who was a high school quarterback here in Southern California, ended up getting tackled during a game, and they thought he dislocated his knee, but it turned out he had ripped the popliteal artery in the back of his knee, ended up losing his leg below the knee. So we set up for him with his prosthetist, we set up, uh, I, I called his prosthetist and said, listen, we'd like to surprise Alex with a leg from a big supporter of CAF named Drew Brees from the New Orleans Saints. And when I talked to Alex's mom, she started crying and she goes, Alex's hero is Drew Brees. He wears number nine because of Drew Brees. He's got pictures on the wall of Drew Brees and quotes from Drew Brees. So we set this thing up for Drew to surprise Alex and we filmed the whole thing 
and it was with at a flag football game that that, that, that Drew has a fat flag football league. And we surprised, you know, I, I talked to Alex in front of all the kids and said, you know, hey, what does Drew Brees mean to you? And he goes, well, they told him he was too short. And they told me I was too short. And they told me that I couldn't be a quarterback. They told him he couldn't be a quarterback. He said, well, I've got someone very special here who would like to present you with something. So Drew comes out like, surprise, and gives him his let, right? And that we the video ended up going uh, Kurt Sandoval, KBC in LA. He ran the story and the video ended up being picked up by Channel One in New York. And next thing you know, Alex is sitting in homeroom and he's, you know, excuse me, uh, CNN is on the phone. I need to take this. Right? <laughs> he's 17 years old. And then I pitched ESPN, uh, a woman named Kristen Lapis, about this story of Drew and Alex. Well, it ended up becoming Drew and Alex and a football player named Zach Miller, who nearly lost his leg to the same type of injury, played for the Bears. And the story ended up becoming the Brotherhood, narrated by Drew Brees on Drew, Alex, and Zach. And we ended up being flown to Atlanta four days before the Super Bowl because ESPN was airing this on NFL Countdown on Super Bowl Sunday, a 13-minute feature called The Brotherhood that is spectacular and now has had 3.2 million views on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And it, it just tells that story. And now we set up a call last week with Alex mentoring another football player named Calder uh, Hodge, who's a double above knee amputee quarterback down in Texas. So they're on a Skype call. And who pops in during a Skype call? Drew Brees. <laughs> right. And so we put that out and that went viral and picked up by ESPN and by the Saints and everybody. So it's, it's, you know, being creative and understanding that these stories, if you capture them, you've got to have them. If you've captured the story, the media, you, you're providing something of value to the media. And in this time of negative, 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 to provide positive is, is a good thing. I love it. And that's my favorite part about this show. I get to talk to amazing people like yourself who do all these crazy things that we love, but it's all through the lens of positivity and how you've been able to do it. How have you been able to inspire others, give yourself passion and allow others to have that passion as well. I think is just incredible. Uh, Bob, you, what you're doing is, is fantastic. And I know obviously you have the the radio show at the slash podcast. You have the right. TV show, as you've talked about. Um, what has it been like, I guess, growing up, you know, media and marketing is, it's never static. It's always changing. It's always constant, obviously, with mm-hmm. the advent of social media and then the the abundance of it and needing to use it. What has it been like being in this industry since the 80s and kind of seeing all the iterations? Now, you know, you started with a magazine. Who has yeah. a magazine anymore, right? Like, know, right? So how how have you learned how to, I guess, navigate the media space specifically within the triathlon Ironman through right. the triathlon Ironman lens? I think the one thing that hasn't changed is great storytelling. At the end of the day, I, I think that we did some great, you know, I had, when I had my, my magazine, it was a free magazine, competitor magazine. I don't remember, but back then, if you had a free magazine, it was like the penny saver. You'd throw it away, right? It wasn't, you, you, so, but my mentality was, hey, what's the difference? I, I'm creating something with great photography, great storytelling, and if, if I'm doing, if, NBC, CBS, and ABC, they are providing something free. When I turn on television, it's free. It's great content, and they're basing their sales on the numbers of people watching. 
now ESPN has a different model. They're getting you know cable fees, right? They're getting subscription fees. Well, so why is my magazine less than Runner's World or Outside Magazine? Because I'm free. If my content is great, if I'm putting them next to each other, my cover photo is just as good. My editorial is just as good. Why isn't free a way to distribute, right? So that led to us getting Gatorade and getting major clients who understood that we we took a lot of pride in our distribution. So we weren't just in running stores or bike shops, places like that. I wanted to be where, because if I'm in a running store with my free magazine, how often do you buy running shoes? Three times a year, you're missing nine issues of my magazine. So we did deals with, with Jamba Juice, right? We're the only magazine in only free publication in Jamba Juice and in a place out here in the West Coast called Rubio's. And the whole concept was, one, people eat a lot, right? And my mentality was, if somebody comes in, I'm, my job is to fill up the corral for the race director. And they've already got their database of people did the race last year. But 10% of those people are coming back. They got to replace the 90% who are going to go to a different race. So now people are walking into a Rubio's and Jama Juice. And usually it's because I'm 20 pounds overweight. I'm going to change my lifestyle. I'm not hiring a trainer. I'm not hiring a nutritionist. I'm going to eat. I'm going to have a smoothie for lunch, right? I'm going to be, I'm going to eat healthy. Then they see the magazine. They go, what's a 5K? What's that? Oh, I think I could do that. And once we get them to put a number on, I know from my own experience, we've got them for life. That They are part of our world. So it's understanding how to grow, uh, how to reach people where they where they need to be reached. And the same thing with, with social and the same thing with YouTube and Facebook. It's It's understanding that if you create great content and we do our breakfast with Bob show from Kona, we had, we did 56 interviews and had 7 million minutes of viewing over the, that week. Those are, those are big numbers. And it's because the content was really, really good. I've got my ukulele player, Poncho man leading in tune out of each interview. The athletes are engaged. Uh, I think I'm pretty good at, at interviewing and we get some great material and it's everybody wins. I guess the, my one philosophy, if I look back, <clears throat> everybody wins. It's, there's a lot of business people who think to win, somebody has to lose. I've never felt that. My feeling was if I'm trying to sell advertising to somebody, I need to create something that's going to get them return on their investment. And if I do that, then they're going to be great. And because we had regional magazines, my philosophy was everything starts with the events. If the events in Southern California are successful, right, if, if people are doing well at these events, then the retailers are going to be selling more bicycles. They're going to be selling more running shoes, more nutrition products, the more vibrant the community, the running community, the cycling community, triathlon community is, the more successful your local businesses are. And then those local businesses are the manufacturers, Nike and the rest of those guys start looking and go, well, wait a second. There's a lot of running events going on there. There's a lot of triathlon going on there. And again, if, if I can be that conduit to grow that, then everybody wins. Right. Manufacturer wins, the retailer wins, the athlete wins, and we win. Everybody wins. Everybody's Everybody. happy. Everyone's healthier for it. Right. I yeah. mean, I just think that is absolutely the way to do it. And 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 if I can be very candid with you, uh, I mean, I have the whole time says so kind of a silly statement, but if I could do 
just half of what you've been able to do in your life, I think I'd be the happiest person on earth. My favorite thing to do is interview people. My favorite thing to do is give away content and, and value and help others. I think that's, you know, just so enjoyable to me. And it sounds like you've been able to hit the nail on the head. So don't be surprised if you see an email from me, you know, every six to eight weeks, just, hey, Bob, what are you working on today? What are you doing? How, how can I help? What can I do to get a little bit better myself? But I just think it's so great. Again, just kind of the, the the mentality behind it, too, I think is very important. As you said, you know, NBC, CBS, you can have an antenna and watch that for free. The content's right. still there. As long as it's good storytelling, people are going to watch. So, and, and the other thing, my when people ask me, they say, well, listen, I'm one person. How do I how do I change the world? How can I have an impact? And one of the things I always tell people is, one, it's great to have a business plan, but sometimes you just have to roll with it. And I always, the one story I always tell is, we have a young man named Emmanuel Afosu Yaboa from Ghana. Emmanuel was born with a deformed leg, right? His fibula, he had no tibia on one side and a fibula sticking out the back of his knee with a foot on it. And he was in, in Ghana. If you have a disability, you're considered cursed. Your family's considered cursed. So his dad deserted the family when he was born. His mom was told to abandon him in the jungle. That's what you did. Disabled people begged on the street, period. They had, they had no rights, nothing. So Emmanuel's mom would carry him back and forth to school every day. And then uh, when, she, when he turned 18, mom became ill and he decided to shine shoes for, uh, when he turned 13, mom became ill. He started shining shoes to take care of the family for a couple dollars a day, left school. At 18, she passed away. And at that point, he wanted to do something to honor her life. So he decided he wanted to ride a bicycle across Ghana to show that someone with this disability could do anything. Well, one problem, he didn't have a bicycle. So with a missionary, he found a missionary and they wrote a typewritten grant request to Challenge Athletes Foundation. They found us on the web and sent us a grant asking for a bicycle. And on the grant request, his birth date was Cinco de Mayo, my birthday. Yep. So we figured, we'll send him a bike. What the hell? We'll never hear from the kid again. He rides 600 kilometers on one leg on a mountain bike across Ghana. People are running after him like he's Forrest Gump. We decide to bring him to San Diego for the event we started for Jim McLaren. So he's never been on a plane, never been on a Ghana. He's got like $3 in his pocket when he shows up in San Diego. He does our 56-mile bike ride with one leg on a mountain bike. Takes him seven hours, right? And I'm like, Emmanuel, what did you think of the bike ride? He's like, Bob, I did not know San Diego was so hilly. So then we reached out to Loma Linda Hospital, which was our title sponsor for our event and said, is this kid a candidate for prosthetic? And they keep him. They said, yeah, he is. So we do a deal. We'll take care of the cost of the leg. We'll take care of the transportation back and forth from Ghana. They'll take care of a home stay in the operation. Again, there's no plan here. We sent him back to Ghana. And then while I'm thinking about this, I'm going, if we don't capture this, if we don't film this, this is a huge miss. Through the Ironman, I worked with a woman named Lisa Lacks, who had won 13 MOU awards for her work on the Ironman and her work on the Olympics. And I said, Lisa, I don't know what this is. I don't know. And her twin sister, Nancy Stern, created, did the, uh, produced the Tour de France for CBS. The two of them left TV to start Lookalike Productions, and they were going to do documentary films. Well, I called Lisa and said, Lisa, I don't know if this is a documentary film, if this is a five-minute piece. All I know is I want to capture what his leg looks like now, be there for the operation, and be there when he does our bike ride next year with two legs rather than one. And she goes, when's he coming? Like, you know, like five months, six months, six weeks. When? I'm like, no, no, five days. <laughs> she puts a crew on a plane. They fly to Ghana. They start filming. They come and follow him to Loma Linda. He, six weeks after the operation, he does a triathlon. 
does a three-mile run on his brand-new prosthetic leg, does the bike ride, does the swim. We fly him back to Ghana. He's got jeans on for the first time in his life because he had a stump that his jeans wouldn't have go over. He's got a medal on from doing our event. It's a He's got a $15,000 leg in a country with a per capita income of 400 bucks. And it's a ticker tape parade through Koforudia, his hometown, right? We bring him back the following year for our triathlon. He does the, triathlon, the, run, the ride with two legs rather than one in four hours rather than seven. Receives our most inspirational athlete award from Robin Williams, who was a huge CAF supporter. Then we sent him up to Nike to receive what's called the Casey Martin Award, which comes with a $25,000 grant to be, and then we match that. So now he has $50,000 as our ambassador to Ghana. Then we sent him to New York to have a sit down with the Secretary General of the United Nations, Kofi Annan, to talk about the rights of the disabled in Ghana. Then Lisa and Nancy pitch ESPN about Jim McLaren and Emmanuel winning the Arthur Ashe Courage Award at the ESPYs, which they do. So imagine this. This is our little charity. This is 2005. We're sitting in the audience at the Kodak Theater in, in L.A., and Matthew Perry from Friends introduces Oprah, who, who agreed to narrate the film, by the way. Uh, Oprah introduces this 12-minute this, uh, video on um, Emmanuel and Jim, narrated by Kiefer Sutherland. And then when that's over, here come Jim and Emmanuel on stage with Oprah, and everybody, LeBron, James, everybody in the audience is, is sobbing. It's the coolest thing ever. Well, somebody who was watching that evening was a guy named President Bush. And the next week, we were launching the film at the National Geographic Theater in D.C., film Emmanuel's Gift. And we got to Washington, and we get a call that President Bush would like to meet Emmanuel. So, again, there's no business plan for this. So now we're in the waiting room at the, at the White House, and... They're, we're watching on television, there's these bombings in the subway in London. And we're like, there's no way the president's going to see us. There's a worldwide emergencies. Next thing you know, they're escorting us into the Oval Office, and Rumsfeld and Cheney are sprinting out of the Oval Office, right? There, there's major stuff going on. So we're standing in a semicircle in the Oval Office. It's myself, it's Emmanuel, my partner from competitor, John, and the most powerful man on the planet. And President Bush is like, Emmanuel? You know what I appreciate? I appreciate that you weren't looking for government help to help out the challenge that disabled athletes in your country. But you ride a mountain bike. How do you ride your mountain bike? Do you ride SPD pedals? Do you ride flat pedals? Do you ride cages? Because I ride with my boys at Quantico. And how do you ride? So Emmanuel's wearing his Ghana garb and he goes to take his leg off, right? And when he goes to disconnect his leg, it makes an audible click, which the Secret Service was not very happy about. They all start moving towards us. The next thing you know, President Bush is holding this leg in his hand, right? And the next day, we get a note from the guy who set this up, visit up, and he goes, hey, guys, we keep a list of the firsts that happen in the Oval Office. The first person to take their leg off in the Oval Office, Emmanuel Afosu Yeboah from Ghana. The cool part is, at that point, the president of Ghana had been doing nothing to help Emmanuel, whose goal was to get a Disability Act passed in Parliament in Ghana. Now he's on the front page of papers in Ghana with the most powerful man in the world. And the president of Ghana met him at the airport in, in, um, in Accra in Ghana when he got off the plane and said, Emmanuel, I will get your disability act presented to parliament. And six months later, it was passed. Flash ahead 2010, we're riding mountain bikes down in Texas with President Bush, his Warrior 100 ride where he brings in troops. And he had myself and my partner, Jeffrey Esikow. We were all riding mountain bikes, President Bush. The first day, 
we finish the ride and then we do the traditional shake hands and get a photo with President Bush. And I walk up and said, you know, Mr. Bush, you probably don't remember, but I met you a few years ago in the Oval Office. I was with a young man from Ghana and he goes, Emmanuel, I never did find out. Does he ride flat pedals? Does he ride cages? Does he ride SPDs? I never did find out. And I'm like, President Bush, I just got to let you know the Disability Act that Emmanuel was pushing for was passed in Parliament because of you. And I really appreciate that. And he said, well, you give that young man my best. But to me, that's the ultimate story on this is a kid in Ghana with no hope who now has had two little girls, a first name, Linda, after Loma Linda Hospital, second name, Comfort, after his mom, traveling the world as a motivational speaker. And all of that happened because he had a vision. And fortunately, the Challenge Athletes Foundation was in a position to help him make that vision come true. And that's how you change the world. That's how you change the world. Just don't let stuff get in your way. Don't be thinking, ah, you know, that's not going to work. Just, just go with it. Just go with the flow. You can't always have a business plan. You just got to make things happen. Just continue to say yes, be a good person, help out everybody, look for the wins that everybody can and achieve in. Bob, this has been incredible. I, we're, we're, this is probably, you know, we're about an hour right now. So I think this is a solid. Will you come on again though? Cause I'm sure you got a couple more stories in you. Anytime, anytime you want to talk about anything, we've got, uh, we've even got into Rudy or Lance Armstrong or any of that yeah. stuff, anything you want to talk about. Oh my goodness, Bob, you're absolutely going to come back on again. Bob Babbitt, CEO of Babbitt Media Group, host of Babbittville, Babbittville Radio, co-founder of the Challenge Athletes Fund. I'm going to have all Bob's socials, all the website links, the YouTube podcast, everything is going to be in the show notes. So make sure to go check it out there. Bob, sincerely appreciate your time today. Thank you, Michael. Keep, uh, you know what? Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Bob. As I said, just such a character, just such a great, great dude. And I'm so grateful that he came on to share all of his stories. And I'm absolutely going to have him on again because he has so, so many more to tell. So please make sure to go follow him and Babbittville on all of their socials. Everything is in the show notes. Please also make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you're listening. Subscribe on YouTube. Check us out there. That's kind of fun. We get to see the face-to-face conversations with me and the guest. And, you know, other than that, thanks for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of. So I appreciate you giving me some of yours. And I hope you make it a wonderful day.